Hey, go ahead if you have your Bible. It's Matthew chapter 6. We're going back to Matthew chapter 6. Just a tiny little portion of scripture uh, today in verse 10. If you're new with us, if you have a device, a phone, uh, an iPad, we go through the ESV version. So you want to click on that so you can stay with us. Matthew 6. So here's something that we know about kids, and I'm not trying to offend all the kids in the room this morning, but they know what they want. And again, I'm talking about you kids like you're not here and you're not listening. They know what they want, but they don't know what's best for them, right? We know that about kids, which means they typically don't want the best or the right things. Now, I have a little story for you. So before we moved here to Ohio all those years ago, we had a 14-year-old daughter. And one of the things we told her was that when we moved here, we were going to buy her a hedgehog because, uh, yeah, because the, the, the laws are a little bit different in Ohio. Like they, they allow you to have like any kind of animal you want, right? I mean, you can do it all up with like Bengal tigers and pandas and, you know, you know all, these, all these animals that are on the, you know, endangered species list. Somehow like we're allowed to have those here, right? Couldn't have one of those hedgehogs back in California. So we said, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to grab you. We're going to get you one of those. It was kind of like one of those things. Like if you decide to not stay in California and actually move with us, you know, we're going to do that for you. I'm kidding. She had to come with us, but we we're hoping that would ease, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the blow of the move. So we get here and then like good parents who know better than her, we lied to her and uh, we, we did not buy her the hedgehog. The reason why we didn't buy her the hedgehog was because we actually went and we, we looked at a hedgehog and we held a hedgehog and we like explored a little like, I don't know, hedgehogging, right? And like they're, they're like the worst pets of all time. Right, that's what we found out. And so uh, because she'd had sort of a, you know, uh, some time spent with some other pets that weren't cats or dogs and hadn't done incredibly well with them. I know she's like listening to this sermon right now. It's gonna be the death of me. But because she hadn't done well with some of the other pets that we'd given her, we were like, you know what? Um, we would like to see another hedgehog live, right? So we're, we're gonna not buy you a hedgehog. And um, we just think this would be the best scenario for us. And um, uh, suffice to say, she didn't dig, she didn't like that. She didn't like that decision. So in a lot of ways, this is how we approach God. We think we know what we want. We demand what it is that we desire. And we say to God, if you give me what I want, I'll uh, give you what you want. I'll want what you want. But what happens is like, it's entirely not true. That's exactly what doesn't happen. It's the opposite. It's actually when we start to want what God wants, we receive and experience what it is we truly need. A guy named J.I. Packer, this old theologian, this is what he said about prayer and specifically kind of the verse that we're going to be going through this morning. He said, here more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Listen, he says, not to make God do my will, which is like practicing magic, but to bring my will into line with his, which is what it means to practice true religion. Okay, so that's a little bit about what we're going to unpack this morning. Now, last week, remember, uh, Jesus began this model for how to pray, right? His disciples came to him and they said, teach us how to pray. So he said, all right, well, when you pray, and then he kind of laid out what it needs to be when we go before the Father, how we need to prioritize and order our prayer. So he begins with telling them how not to pray, he said, beware of these hypocrites and these Pharisees and these people who just make prayer this outward showing. 
In fact, they're not really having communion with God. What they really want to do is sort of uh, present themselves as people that are, you know, more holy and more righteous and more connected with God. And because that's their motivation, because that's the heart with which they pray, God says, actually, they're not really praying, but they're just increasing their own sinful egos and aspirations and their own desires. And he said, don't do that. Don't be one of them. That's not what prayer is. And then secondly, he says, he begins this model for how to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer. But he starts with saying, hey, let's begin with who we are praying to. And so remember last week, we looked at the beginning of the prayer, which says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we realize that, man, we're not just praying to anybody here. We're praying to God who is a father in heaven whose name is how, and we kind of unpack all the implication of what that means and why we can approach God as somebody who is intimately involved in all the intricacies of our lives while still being above everything and ruling over everything. And today, Jesus is going to begin telling us what to pray. So last week it was who to pray to, how to prioritize our prayers and how to begin with who we're praying to. And then this week it is what we need to pray. And he begins telling us that prayer begins first with a person before it moves to priorities, which by the way, begin with God. So this is what prayer is meant to do for us, all right? Prayer is meant to draw us back to wanting what God wants, right? There's a giving up of control when we pray Matthew 6.10, which is this, if you want to look down in your Bibles, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying a couple of things when we pray that, Right? There's implications to praying that way. And here's what we're saying. The first thing we're saying is, God, you know what's best. Like we're literally saying that. We're literally saying what my daughter didn't want to say to us when we withheld the hedgehog. God, you know what's best. Secondly, this is what we're saying when we pray this prayer. We're saying, I'm going to trust you even when the circumstances of my life are screaming otherwise. Even when I can't feel it, even when I can't sense it, even when I can't understand it, I'm going to pray for your kingdom and your will because I'm trusting something about your character that my character in its limitations doesn't get me to in terms of what I know and what I don't know, if that makes sense, all right? It's kind of a little bit about workouts and diets, which by this point, all of you guys have just kissed that stuff goodbye. Like, we're done. It's, what is it, January 13th today? Like, there are no more diets. There are no more workouts. You guys haven't worked out in like a week. And you guys have been eating donuts the last week. I've spent time with some of you. I know this is true. I know this is true. But here's what's interesting, right? In the first week, two weeks ago, one of you guys were all jacked up about keeping all your resolutions. Man, there was no workout or a diet that made you feel like you were doing the right thing. It all felt wrong, Right? That January 1st when you wake up and you want to go for the stuff that's delicious and you don't, there ain't nothing that feels right about that, right? You start working out and your bones are literally crying out to you like, what kind of punishment is this? Nothing feels right about it. But you're, you're doing it for different reasons, aren't you? You are. You're doing it because you trust an outcome that you can't see, Right? And that's what prayer is. Prayer is trusting that we don't know what God knows. So it's God, not us, that receives our trust. So this is what praying is. Praying for God's rule and will before your own will. 
Praying for God's rule and will before your own rule and will. And this is how God slowly rules your heart and transforms your will to his. And so as we look down at this verse, in Matthew 6.10, Jesus tells us to pray these three things before praying anything else. And the first one is this. He says, pray your kingdom come. Pray your kingdom come. And what we mean by kingdom come is we're really... We're just talking about God's rule here on earth. And this takes us all the way back to, to the book of Exodus, right? All the way back to Exodus when the kingdom of Israel, right? When God was establishing the kingdom of Israel, he pulled them out of slavery from Egypt. And, and here was the big idea with them. He was establishing himself through this people. So what that meant was wherever they went, um, what was supposed to follow was this rule and reign of God. There was supposed to be peace, where the Israelites were. There was supposed to be justice. There was supposed to be mercy. There was supposed to be forgiveness. There was supposed to be righteousness. So if you went into the kingdom of Israel, you were going to experience God in all of those significant ways. So this prayer is actually something that you see threaded throughout all of scripture, which is your kingdom come. Now, if you grew up in the 1980s, it means three things. It means one, you're middle-aged like me. Uh, two, you grew up in one of the most embarrassing decades, literally of all time, okay? Uh, and three, there's a particular song that you would have uh, probably known every word of. And if you just decide to go to like a grocery store, almost at any time of the day, you'll still know this song. And it was a song called Everybody Wants to Rule the World, right? You got, everybody knows that, right? Even all you millennials are like, no, I know that song. I'm, you know, I'm, there's been like 19 cover versions of it. I know it. Um, I'm just trying to keep it current here, kids, all right? Um, but that song speaks to a particular truth that this particular band in the 80s was driving at, which exists in our hearts, which is that we actually are drawn to ruling ourselves, to ruling the world, to being rulers of everything around us. We want that control. We want to be the builders of our empires and our kingdoms. We want to be the general contractors of everything that exists around us. We want to design. We want to build. We want to custom fit. We want to custom build everything around us because we want what we want. Now, the word kingdom is kind of a strange word. Uh, for Americans, I think. It's not language that we use. In, I mean, we're like we left that whole monarchy thing behind like years ago, right? Um, well, we did, but there's a reason why Jesus doesn't tell us to pray uh, your United States come. Don't be offended by that, but, he, but he, doesn't, he doesn't tell us to pray that. And what he's doing here is he's trying to lead us into a deeper understanding of, of God's present and future kingdom. And that the fact is, is that it's established on this unchanging truth. It's established on this incorruptible righteousness that comes from the throne. We just sang about this of a sovereign, holy, and perfect king. So what we have to understand when we talk about God's kingdom, which we are all a part of, is that it's, it's, a, it's not a democracy. God's economy is not democratic. He is the ruler. Like, God rules. Like, we, we can just stop it right there, period. Let's pray. Scott, come up, sing. We're out, donuts, home, right? Like, we, we could just leave the whole thing at that because God rules and he doesn't share, he doesn't share that, that particular rule. So if we're praying like Jesus is instructing us here, 
as he instructed his disciples, if we're praying for God's kingdom to come, what, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by kingdom of God exactly? Well, here's a couple ways that we can flesh that out very simply. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God that began with the coming of Jesus, that began as it started flooding throughout the earth with the coming of Christ, right? Here's another thing that it is. It is God's community, you and me, of forgiven ambassadors, you and me, called the church, you and me, advancing to all corners of the earth. To keep it a little more personal, this is how one pastor described the kingdom of God. And I love this. He describes it as the good life with Jesus, right? So that's all of us. That's something that all of us get to experience as we are now part of God's forgiven children, ushered into his kingdom that was established by the coming of Christ is that we now experience the good life with Jesus. So Jesus is saying here, he's saying, when we pray to our heavenly hallowed father, our prayer should first communicate our desire for God's rule and reign to cover the earth. We should pray for the message of the gospel to permeate our homes, our neighborhoods, our downtown, our workspaces, our playgrounds, our classrooms, etc., etc. We should pray to see people's eyes opened to Jesus, see them transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to see brokenness restored to wholeness. That's the outpouring, that's the spreading of God's kingdom. Now here's the question for us, and it's, do you find yourself desiring that on one hand, but not really praying that on the other? Or, or do you find yourself like not even desiring that like in the first place? Like this is the first time you've ever heard that your prayers are supposed to be something a little more deep and a little more extensive than just like a grown-up Christmas list. So it's interesting here that Jesus is giving us a model for the things that are best for us to pray about. So praying for God's rule on earth is important because this is how God will birth this desire to rule our hearts. So for the things that you don't desire, for the prayers that you bring to God that need to be expanded, that need to be not so narrow, that need, need to be not so entrenched in sort of your self-focus and self-centeredness, the way to do that, the way for that to change in your heart, and if you're a child of God right now hearing me say this, you want that to change in your heart. And whether you want that or you don't want that, but know that you should want that, the way to get that is through prayer. It's literally through praying what Jesus told his disciples to pray. You don't got to use those exact words. But this directionally is where we pray, which is a reordering of our loves and priorities to be more God-centered. So Jesus says, pray, your kingdom come. Secondly, he says, pray, your will be done, which is God's will in our life. So along with praying for God's kingdom to advance to all corners of the earth, all corners of our backyard, all corners of our town, we also pray for his will to be done. So this leads us to the question of what the heck is God's will? And I, I want to make this a bit more personal because on one hand, God's will is what we just talked about. God's will is for his kingdom to continue to expand so that lost people would become found people, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So let's break this down a little more personally to us when we talk about God's will so that we're not confused, so that we don't get superstitious so that we don't start like using like magical catchphrases, 
When we talk about God's will, this is really important that we understand this because it causes major confusion for us. And the reason why is because we apply it to things God hasn't revealed to us and we turn into superstition and crystal balls and all of those things. So here's what we know about God's will. Here's a, a working definition of God's will from 1 Thessalonians 4. God's will is for your sanctification. If you ever wake up and you're just wondering off the top I wonder what God's will is for me today. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. I mean, he lays it right out for you there. He says, my will is for your sanctification. Well, okay, good. What is sanctification? It's the process in which your heart and your mind become more conformed to the heart and mind of Jesus. As you, the as you is, is important, as you practice and obey his commands. And he's given us something for those things to happen. He's given us what's called the means of grace in our life for those things to happen. What, what are the means of grace? Well, they're things like what's happening right now. They're things like preaching where we open God's word and we let that word settle into our hearts to reshape us and reform us. It comes through what we're going to be doing here in a few minutes after the message, which is take communion, which is this time that we gather together remembering Christ's death receiving his bread and his body as symbols of the nourishment that we need to stay alive spiritually. It comes through baptism. We have baptisms and we see people symbolically go through this death to life process. It comes through prayer, right? Kind of what we've already done, I think, three times so far in our church service. It comes through church discipline, when necessary, which is us calling you back to the things that God is calling you back to so that you can have fellowship with the church body. Those are just some of the means of grace that God has given you for your sanctification. God's grace transforms then this obeying God's commands from what can seem then, like what I just laid out, drudgery into delight. And in fact, David prays for God's will in Psalm 51. He says, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So here's what we know. God's will for you is to pray for his will to be done. And then after that, we wait while obeying his word. And man, that is hard, but it is happy work. Praying for God's will to be done is how joy becomes restored in your heart. And joy can be nothing less than delighting in everything God wants, which in turn is what makes obedience a delight. Do you realize when we start understanding more of what God wants for us in terms of our sanctification, those are the things that we are going to ferociously go after and then we're going to find ourselves just having increasing joy and delight as we discipline ourselves to go after those things. So if God's will is your sanctification and sanctification comes by joyful obedience then making decisions about things that don't disobey God's command they can be made with wisdom and discernment, okay? I need you guys to listen to me on this one. This allows uh, people to take godly risks that come from using wisdom and using discernment. This is important because if our theology is off on this, we can use God's will as like God's wall, right? No, man, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not hearing that audible from him. I'm not, I'm not hearing whether I should go this way or that way, pick this color or that color. So I'm just going to be stagnant. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to do 
anything. And so what this does is if we think wrongly about God's will, we become risk adverse. So when you don't act, when you don't take risks and you blame your lack of decision making on whether it's God's will or not, that's another way that you're trying to assume control and live out your own will, right? Do you guys hear me on that? Because look, God does not tell us in the Bible what car to buy, what person to marry, what college to attend, what job to take, what state to live in, or what color to paint our houses and our bedrooms. Like you're not gonna get some secret sign with that. You know what he's given you to determine those things? He's given you all of us, right? And through all of us, through the collective body of Christ, what we have is a particular kind of wisdom and discernment now to make good choices and take godly risks, right? He's given us minds to make decisions about those things which will give him glory when those decisions reflect prayerful humility and dependence and stewardship. So listen, if God simply spelled out every move that you were supposed to make, we wouldn't have had to been given the book of Proverbs. Why do we have the book of Proverbs? Well, because it, it calls us to use wisdom to make decisions that will require us to trust God in, right? So man, if you're, if you're facing one of those decisions today and you're like, man, I don't know whether to turn left here. I don't know whether to turn right here. Well, that's why you have the body of Christ around you. That's why it's so important to be invested in the body and have the body be invested in you so that you can go to other brothers and sisters who have discernment and have wisdom and say, hey, I've been praying about this. Should I go this way or should I go that way? Help me weigh these things out because one isn't a sinful decision and the other one a non-sinful decision. But I need to make a decision because that is honoring God by moving forward and using the mind he's given me. So we use each other to help in that wisdom and in that discernment. And again, as we grow in prayer, as we grow in wanting what God wants, as we grow in these means of grace that I just laid out, you know what? Understanding and being able to make those wise and discerning decisions, it, it becomes easier. And when it doesn't, we trust, we trust God. So as long as we're obeying God, we have the freedom. Man, this should be like a breath of fresh air to some of you right now, I'm telling you. You have the freedom to make wise decisions. You have the freedom to trust that God will remain in control. Even, listen, even when those decisions go south, even when those things just absolutely do not go as planned. You know what happens when that happens? It's how we learn wisdom. And since you can be assured that God will take care of your needs, you can pray for his will to be done because he will already include your needs in every decision that you make. So this is a bold prayer. This is a bold prayer. It's a right prayer. It's a bold prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then the final part of it is on earth as it is in heaven. And this is for the fulfillment of joy in our hearts. So what we're ultimately praying here at the end is for a heavenly reality to take form and function on earth. You know that old saying, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You guys ever heard that? I guess I'm only the only guy that was born back in the 20s. Um, the problem with that statement is that if we were more heavenly minded, we'd do far more earthly good, right? None of us earth are heavenly minded enough ever. There will come a day though, when we will no longer pray for God's kingdom to come and will to be done because it will be fully accomplished. And that's kind of where the third part 
of this verse leads us. Imagine a day when you are no longer praying for brokenness to be restored, when you no longer have to pray for forgiveness because those relationships now are back to where they need to be, when your mind is not racked with an overload of distractions. Imagine that day when your heart is not being tempted It's not being pulled in 20 different directions. That's why we pray this way on earth as it is in heaven. It's for the fulfillment of joy in our hearts until we meet Jesus face to face in that day. And that's why we seek God first here on earth. Because we find ourselves in this already not yet conundrum. It's this already thing because the fact is Christ died. His kingdom has been ushered, but it hasn't gone to full fulfillment yet. We haven't met our Savior. We are not with him forever. We are not living with glorified bodies. We don't have the hope of there being, uh, I mean, we don't live in the reality of there being no more crying, no more mourning. But that day is coming. That day is coming, which is why we find ourselves in such desperate need of praying a prayer like that to remind us that, man, it is not how it should be. Everything is not the way we desire it to be on earth, but it will be. And so we pray that way. The problem is that what we seek to make us happy, what we seek to find that fulfillment doesn't actually make us happy or get us fulfilled. Because when our greatest objective in life is to see our own kingdom advance and our own will to be done, it leads to idolatry. And idolatry is slavery. This is what Paul calls straining toward the goal in Philippians 3. Paul gives us instruction of how to do this. He says this, but one thing I do, He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, man, I'm pressing. I'm pushing toward this. And he says this, listen, let those of us who are mature think this way. So the kind of prayer that Jesus is laying out for us is a prayer of maturity, It's something that we don't just keep going back and praying the same kind of self-focused, self-centered prayers that we've always prayed. And by the way, if you pray a self-centered, self-focused prayer, good. But there is something in us where prayer should be changing and transformed in us so that we start praying the way that Jesus is instructing us to pray, which says something about the direction and the shape of our hearts. So Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything in you thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. You know what's crazy? What it means is that there's hope for all of us. I mean, some of you guys are sitting there thinking like, man, I just, number one, I don't even pray. And number two, when I pray, it's one of those white knuckle prayers because everything's going south. Everything's wrong. I'm coming before the Lord desperately. And that's all I ever got for him. And what Paul is saying, hey, that's okay. God's going to continue to work. He's going to continue to reveal himself to you. He's going to draw you to himself. Why? Because he's God and he can't not do that if you're his. So that's going to happen. So none of y'all have to have any despair this morning. What you need to have is an increased desire and delight to actually move into this kind of of praying and relationship and communion with God. And if you ask God to give you that desire and that delight, that's praying God's will. Do you guys hear me with that? And then Paul finishes this group, this passage. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So hold true. 
hold true to the gospel as you grow in the things that God wants you to pray, which will only increase your joy. So praying on earth as it is in heaven, is, it's pressing on toward the call of Jesus because you believe that this is how the fulfillment of joy becomes evident in you by pursuing these heavenly things. And you know what's interesting about that is, man, you don't pursue the same things in life that you once did. I mean, none of you do. None of you pursue the same things in life that you did when you were a kid, right? Like, I don't pine away for a Spider-Man action figure and a new BMX bike right now. Maybe the bike, I don't know. But like, I, I, I don't, right? My, my needs and my desires have matured. And, and you'd look at me funny if they hadn't. My wife would look at me even funnier if they, if they hadn't, right? Matthew 6.33, though, Jesus reminds us later in this chapter. He says, guys, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So this is the way I always like to look at this. When I first started dating my wife, man, I just wanted to be with her. That's all I wanted. Now, being with her usually included dinner and movies and incredibly romantic walks in the moonlight because that's how I roll. But although those things came with her, I'm being stupid right now. But although those things came with her, you know what? I didn't really care about any of those things. Man, I just wanted to be with her. I was seeking her first before all of the other things. And so this is Jesus calling us now to pray this way. And you know what this prayer does for us? It actually reframes the American dream for us, doesn't it? It reframes our pursuits. Some of you are like, dude, I gave up on that years ago. To which I would say, well, good, because there's something deeper, there's something richer, there's something more glorious, more lasting, more internal, and far less self-centered if our pursuits are transformed and reshaped like Jesus is teaching us here. So let me finish with this. Three ways that praying this draws our affections more deeply to Christ. So three ways that praying like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven, it draws our, our affections more deeply to Christ. The first one is this. It makes you less worldly-minded. John tells us in 1 John 2, 17 that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The problem is that we're very much about seeking first the kingdom of us, right? We believe the road to happiness is always when we get what we want, but this model for prayer, it's so counter. Oh my goodness, it's so counter. It tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that it's only when we pray for God's kingdom and his will in heaven to spread to the ends of the earth that we experience satisfaction of souls that are content in the care of our heavenly father. It gives us something so different. It gives us something that is, no, that is so not feelings driven and feelings based. Because what Jesus is saying here is that getting what we want only satisfies when what we want is God more than anything else. That is going to be the bottomless well of our prayer requests is when we pray for more of God. Does this mean we become monks, right? That we deny our, our basic needs and our, and our desires? Well, th there are some desires that, that need to be shelved, right? That need to be redeemed. There are some desires that need to be get rid of altogether. 
You have to make those decisions. You need to talk with somebody for wisdom and discernment about these things that may be creating barriers in your prayer life to even pray for God's kingdom come and his will be done. But does that mean that God is just constantly and consistently denying our basic needs? Of course not. God gave us desires for things that we need that he supplies for us because he's a good father. Remember we covered that last week. He's a good father. If, if we ask him for a fish, will he give us a stone? No, but it means that our joy is not dependent on our acquisition of anything less than God. And in fact, our joy flows from seeking the kingdom of God first, believing that all these other things will be added in whatever amount God determines for us. And some of you guys, he just gives a bigger amount to. He also gives you more responsibility in that greater amount. And then other of us, he, he gives less too. So praying this way, it makes you less worldly minded, which is his will for your life and sanctification too. Praying this way helps you give up control. How many times have you done everything right in your life? Man, I'm just dying to see a hand pop up right now. How many times have we done everything right? I mean, we've taken care of our bodies, but a disease comes. We've been a good spouse, but our marriage falls apart. We've tried our best to raise our kids. One of them goes off the rails. We've worked hard at our job and we get laid off. By praying for God's will, we're saying, I don't know, but I know you. And I'm saying, I don't want anything becoming master over me. So God, I want to give up my control because the realization when we start praying this way and what God surfaces in our hearts, which is the most freeing thing in the world, is that you never had it. You never had control anyway. And all of these things that you grip with your fingers so tight are part of what is causing you the grief and the agony and the anxiety so praying God's will be done, it helps us give up control. And finally, praying this way grounds us in the present with future hope. Because see, here's the thing. Just listen to me. I've got like a minute left. We always seek what we desire most. The root of all of this, the subtext to all of this is desire. If your desire is for God, then the good things that God will add to you only increase your desire for God even more. More. So it's when our prayers are for what God desires that we actually receive what will satisfy us the most, which is the glory of God's will in heaven advancing to all of the earth. It's when God's will is accomplished that joy is accomplished and being accomplished in us. It's when God's desires are fulfilled in us that our desires are most satisfied. And the reason why we have any understanding of this is because of Jesus. That's the reason why we understand praying this way. When we pray like this, it drives us back to Jesus. It drives us back to the night of his death when Jesus cried out to his father. He prays, not my will, but your will be done. And you know what happens right after that? God denies Jesus' request. He denied the ask by granting him what would ultimately bring about the greatest desire in Jesus' heart, which was what? To obey the Father. And by obeying the Father, greatest joy would be experienced 
by his suffering on the cross, which is why we can even have this conversation. Does that make sense? God wants to reshape your desires. This prayer doesn't deny that we have needs. Again, it actually reminds us that our greatest need has been given to us in Jesus. Listen, here's a rhetorical question. Isn't a God who is good enough to grant us our greatest need be able to be trusted for our lesser ones? The heart of prayer is not what we're getting. It's who we're becoming. So we look down at this and we think, well, hold on. Am I trusting God? Is Jesus steering me in the wrong way here? Would any of us walk away and go, nah, I'm just not buying it. I don't think what he's saying is true. So we are drawn now to really the, the, the crux of the issue, which is our trust in God. Because when we pray like this, it, it deconstructs things in us that are uncomfortable. If you start praying this way, if you commit to pray this way, there will be deconstruction happening in your heart. Your will and your desire will be deconstructed. When you pray like this, you'll be reminded that your ultimate need has been filled by the suffering of Jesus. So that when you do go through suffering, you're reminded that, wait for it, listen, even that is the will of God. And he's doing something in you that you don't know except for the fact that you know that he's good. This is a prayer that Jesus fulfilled. So Jesus is giving the disciples a prayer for the present as we wait and hope for the future in which Christ will come and the glory of heaven will be our present reality forever. That's why the only safe prayer for us to pray is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Let's pray.